have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John is a, one, of the, one of the books, we call them, in the New Testament, which is the second major part of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. It's not quite the second half, it's more like the, it's more like the last third of, of the Bible. So if you want to flip back to that section, start looking at the headings at the top of the page, you should run into John. I also want to say, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we have Bibles here that we would love for you to have. Uh, at the end of each aisle in the center here are, are Bibles we've provided for you either to use today or to take with you. We'd love it if you would take it with you. And we'd love to follow up with you later on what you read there. Um, that, that would be our pleasure, so please take us up on that. We're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, we've been, for, the, for all, all year so far, in this ancient book, an ancient story about Jesus and who he is. And what we've said about this book several times, I'll say it again just because I don't want us to forget it. This book isn't written just to entertain us, like a, lot, like a good biography. It isn't written to just give us more insight into what it is to be human, like a good novel. This is a story that's meant to persuade us of something. It's meant to tell us who Jesus is and even more to convince us that we can trust him, that we can trust him with our lives, that we can trust him to do something for us that no one else can. Everything that John has chosen to tell us in this story, in other words, he chose to tell on purpose. And not because it's interesting or because it's entertaining, but because there's life in the details. He, th- he says near the end of his book that he could have written, he could have filled a seemingly infinite number of books with stuff that Jesus did and said. He's chosen to s- tell us these things so that we would believe in him. So what we've been trying to do is in our series is we, if we've been unpacking the different parts of this gospel is try to understand what is it that we're supposed to get about Jesus that should convince us to believe in him from this section. And when we come to chapter 4, what we've seen so far is several different kinds of material. We've seen sayings of Jesus that are meant to convince us that he sees things in the way no one else does. We've encountered stories about his power that are meant to convince us that he is not just an average ordinary guy. We've seen stories that model what it is to respond to Jesus, what it looks like to respond in faith, or what it looks like to reject Jesus, so that we'll know what we're supposed to do with him as we encounter him here. And what we come to today, the purpose of this story, is to give us a clear sense of what Jesus came to offer us. John has included this story, one among several throughout this gospel, that are meant to clarify for us what it is Jesus came to offer if we come to him. Now, I want to read the story first before we comment on it. What we're going to do this morning is just walk through it and try to highlight three separate things that this story points us to. Three separate things that Jesus came to offer those who will come to him. He offers acceptance. We're going to see that first. He offers satisfaction. That's the main point of the passage this morning. And then in a a point we're only going to sort of gesture towards today and then really get into next week, Jesus came to offer us a purpose. A purpose that we were made for. A purpose that now Jesus makes possible for us. Those are the three things we're going to highlight. Now I want to read the story first though and then we'll get into the details. So, hopefully you found this. Now I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from John chapter 4. I'm going to read uh, John 4, 1 through 26. Though for this morning we're going to focus mostly on, on uh, one verses uh, 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now, 
When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which you guys may have a footnote. It's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I've said already the emphasis here in this story is on what Jesus offers to us. And the first thing to notice about what Jesus offers to us has everything to do with where this story takes place and with who it is that Jesus is talking to. It's not so much what he says. The first thing we're going to notice is not so much what he says, but where he says it and to whom. 
the story begins as Jesus decides to move the location of his ministry. So far, most of what we've seen happen in our book has happened around the city of Jerusalem, which is the holy city for the Jewish people. And it's in a region uh, of, of that nation, of the nation of Israel, called Judea at this time. Now, these divisions aren't there anymore. The map looks different today. But back then, in Jesus' day, what we would think of as Israel was divided into three sections. You had Judea down at the south, and then you had, it's organized north-south, a long strip. You had Judea down here at the south. At, at the top, in the north, you had Galilee. That's where Nazareth was, Jesus' hometown. That's where he grew up. And then right in the middle, you had a region called Samaria. Now, here's the thing about Samaria. Samaria was full of Samaritans. And that was not a good thing if you were Jewish. The Samaritans were created a few hundred years before Jesus came onto the scene when, when a nation called Assyria came into Israel to take them over. Now you can read about this in some of the books in the Old Testament. There's some, the stories are all told there. It was actually a punishment of God on his people for their idolatry and unfaithfulness to him. He sends this powerful nation into Israel to basically take them out. What they do, the way this nation would do it, Assyria, what they would do is they would take the sort of cream of the crop, the best of the best, from the nations that they would take over. They would take them back to Assyria, sort of work them into Assyrian society, maybe even give them positions in the government, sort of make them part of the nation. And then with whoever was left, sort of dregs of society, if you will, they would send some of their people, some of the Assyrians, to that area and sort of intermingle with whoever was left. And what, they, what, would, what would always end up happening is that they would, they would marry, intermarry, they would sort of bring their Assyrian religions, and those religions would get melded in together with the religions of the, of the people, of the, of the sort of host country. And over time, what you'd end up with was a sort of melting pot of culture and religion and race. And you can imagine that caused some serious tension. You guys seen the swamp people? You guys know what I'm talking about? Swamp people? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. I mean, one of the, maybe one of the best, I, I was thinking one of the best ways to understand like, what the Samaritans were made up of is a lot like Bayou Country in Louisiana, where you got this, these, this certain people that are created by all of these different streams you, of, of the French and the English, uh, there, there are African influences and some Native American influences all melded together into this sort of bioculture where they're today still sort of speaking English, but they need subtitles. I kid you not, the show, they use subtitles so you know what they're saying. It's a great show. You guys should watch it if you haven't. Anyway, so the Samaritans were, were a lot like Creoles or Bayou people in Louisiana. Well, the Jews did not like it, but not just because of... Uh, there was a long history here. They were seen as sellouts. They were seen as, as the ones who accepted Assyrian influence rather than resisting it. They were seen as those who were impure religiously because they had adopted some of the Assyrian religion into their own. So maybe a better way to understand what it would have been like, the tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews, is to think about race tensions in America in our past, but even more, think about the tensions now between Israel and Palestine, where you've got, you've got ethnic tension, it's religious, and it's rooted in history. It's rooted in a lot of wrong done to each other, a lot of bitterness built up over time. That's, that's a great way to think about what was going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. They did not mix. 
if you were a good Jew, then the, the goal was to try not to get around Samaritans. Now, the problem is that if you wanted to get to Galilee from Judea, the quickest way was to go through Samaria. Now, sometimes you would go around it, but it took a lot more time. If you wanted to make an efficient trip, you just went straight through. You just kind of keep your head down and go. But Jesus gets tired, and Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Around the middle of the day, hottest part of the day, Jesus is weary and stops at a well, a famous well we're told is associated with Jacob and the land that he gave to his son Joseph. Now, he's hungry and he's thirsty, so he sends his disciples off, but I think it's because he wants to be alone. Jesus knows what's about to happen here. And the next feature, so what we're doing here, is what is it about this context that shows us what Jesus came to offer? Well, one thing is that he's in Samaria, he's talking to Samaritans, and there was a history here. Samaritans were people who the Jews did not want to associate with, but, but there's more to it. There's a lot more to it. Because the next thing to notice is that as Jesus' disciples leave him alone, as he's sitting there next to the well, worn out, resting, Jesus meets a woman who comes to the well to draw water. Now, that's the next startling feature of this passage. It's not just that Jesus is engaging a Samaritan here. It's that Jesus is engaging a Samaritan woman. Now, it's scandalous at that time that he would speak to a woman alone, in, just in general, that he would speak to a woman alone was unusual. But there was all of this negative association with Samaritan women in particular. I read this week, I kid you not, that there was a law codified in, within a generation after Jesus. There was a Jewish law, a rabbinic law, put on the books that defines Samaritan women as perpetually unclean. If you're familiar with the laws of the Old Testament, you know that there were some hang-ups about women, particularly their time of the month. Well, if Jewish law restricted the sort of unclean period to that one time of month, this new law says Samaritan women, always unclean. In fact, the way it reads is, from the cradle, they are unclean. They defile, the Jews believed, whoever touches them. And one more feature. Can't miss this one. I had not noticed this one before this week, but a lot of Bible scholars pointed this out. This woman comes to the well all alone and at the hottest part of the day where what would have been expected at that time was that women came to the well together. That was the normal way. Like women today go to the bathroom together, right? At a restaurant. Back then, they would have gone together as a herd just for the company and maybe the protection. I don't know. They would have gone together to the well and they would have done it either in the morning or in the evening because that's when it's cooler, right? They wouldn't have come. This was an arid, desert-like climate, right? It was hot. They would not have come during, during the hottest part of the day. But here's this woman all alone trudging up in the heat of the noon sun. Why? I can guarantee you it wasn't because she had other errands to run that morning and this was when she could squeeze it in. You know, cultures like this one, even today in the third world, you organize your day around trips to the well. And these sort of nuts and bolts, just getting by type activities take so much time and energy that they are the major building blocks of your day. This isn't coincidence. I think the best way to understand why she's alone is that she has to be alone. She's alone because she's not welcome. Because as we're going to see later, I mean, we already read it. 
you guys probably picked up on it. She's living in public shame for her sexual sin. In other words, this woman that Jesus engages is not just a Samaritan. And she's not just a Samaritan woman. She's a Samaritan woman not wanted by other Samaritan women. She is a pariah. But she's come to the right man. Jesus speaks to her directly. He says, give me a drink. Now I know if you don't have that background, it almost sounds like Jesus is being arrogant and presumptuous here, right? You want to tell him, well, your legs aren't broken. Get your own drink. Your mama doesn't work here. But in context, in context, it's an act of radical grace. For her to give him a drink, and don't miss this, is for him to drink from her jar. Now, just a couple generations ago, my grandparents' generation, think about the Jim Crow laws on the books in the South in particular in America. There were entire plumbing systems organized around not sharing water the same water fountains with people not like you. And that was only a pale reflection of the intensity of the hatred and the uncleanness associated with Samaritans if you were a Jew. And Jesus here not only wants to drink from the same water fountain, he asked for her water bottle. She is shocked by his request. You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria? And naturally so. As one Bible scholar, Don Carson, put it, she doesn't know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. Or as John himself put it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus accepts this woman because he can. Because he came to make it possible. Jesus came to make what is unclean clean once and for all by his blood. And this passage, it's not spelled out for us. John's going to get there. Here we just have a little bit of a forecast for what's coming. John is going to focus in detail and in depth on how what Jesus does on the cross, how his death purifies all who trust in him, who come to him for cleansing and acceptance. What I want you to take from this passage is a promise that extends to you where you sit and no matter who you are and what you have done, Jesus will accept you if you will come to him. There is no one who is unworthy of Jesus Because Jesus makes you worthy. Those who come to him, he will never cast out. I don't care how many times you've been rejected by somebody else. I don't care how alone you feel right now, and maybe with good reason. You come to Jesus, and he will be there for you. No matter what you hide from other people, 
thinking that if they only knew, they wouldn't have anything to do with you. I can promise you that Jesus sees. He knows already, but he still will have you if you turn to him in faith. That's what Jesus came to offer, acceptance. There's more. Jesus offers satisfaction. Now this is the main point of our passage, the section we're going to look at this morning anyway. Jesus also offers satisfaction. And this is the main point of the conversation. So far, we're just drawing out what we can learn from the context here, from who it is Jesus is talking about and, and what he said to her. What he, what he actually says is, takes us to a whole other level. So far, the woman has just been struck by the grace of Jesus. She knows nothing yet of his glory. That's what Jesus means when he says, oh, if you just knew who was speaking to you, who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have turned the tables. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water that would, that would make, you, make you free from thirst once and for all. She doesn't know what to do with that, right? Say, what? She thinks he's talking about running water. The same phrase would have been used for running water that Jesus is using here for living water. If you don't know what we know about Jesus, having looked at the book already, that he's always talking about a second level. He's always talking about material things at one level, but he's also thinking on this higher spiritual level. If you didn't know that about him, you would have thought he was talking about running water. And she's saying, how are you going to get to that? What do you know that we don't know? The well itself is deep. You can't even get this well water for me without a bucket. And, and, And by the way, this water was good enough for Jacob. It's good enough for him, for his livestock, for his sons. Are you saying you're better than Jacob? She's being sarcastic. She's pushing back. But Jesus, Jesus can take it. Jesus says, well, I'm glad you asked. That's exactly what I'm saying. See, this water from Jacob, you drink it, you're going to be thirsty again. You just following the conversation? You drink this water from Jacob, and it's tasty, but you will thirst again. Take what I give you. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. You want to know how it literally reads? The original language? I like it. I like it even better. You will never be thirsty forever. That's a little bit clunky, but I like that. You will never be thirsty forever. In fact, that water will become in you, inside of you, a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. Now, she's intrigued. She's intrigued. She wants this water. But she's still missing the deeper meaning of what Jesus is promising her. She's still not quite getting it. What she wants is convenience. She says, give it to me so I don't have to come here and get this water anymore. I'm tired of making this trek all alone in the heat of the day every day. Give me this water so I can put my feet up. Right? She's still locked in on the challenges of her life and her circumstances. She's still locked in on what's outside of her. She wants things easier. And it's easy to beat up on her here for not getting it. It seems very small-minded of her, but honestly, are we really any different? Don't we all believe by instinct that the key to our happiness is to change something outside of us? 
something that's outside of us. That what's holding us back is nothing inside of us, but something outside of us in our life that we wish were different. By instinct, we all think if we could get rid of something that makes our life challenging, our life would be happier, just like she does. But Jesus knows she needs more. He knows she needs more. And he knows she can't see it yet, so he's going to show her. This is what we've been seeing from Jesus from, from the very beginning of this book. When he encounters somebody, he goes straight to the heart. He cuts right through them, sees them in a way they maybe aren't even, aren't even willing to see themselves and brings it to the surface. And I think that's what's going on when Jesus responds to her request for this water by telling her to go and fetch her husband. Now, that's been a tough thing to read for me as I've read this story before. Maybe for you, it seems like a jarring change of subject. Like he takes a hard turn here into a new, into a new focus. But I think that's not the way we're supposed to read it. He's talking about exactly the same thing. The, the issue is that she's locked in on her physical thirst that she thinks can be quenched by water. And Jesus came to address a deeper thirst that she's been trying to quench by a series of relationships with men, none of which has filled her up. Jesus tells her to go call her husband because he knows the reality. She tries to deflect. Oh, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're with now isn't your husband. You're right. You speak the truth when you say you have no husband. Jesus knows what's in her. He knows that her series of relationships with these men is a sign that on a deeper, much deeper level than that of convenience, she has been looking for security and happiness in a change of what's outside of her. That just as surely as she has looked as she looks to the prospect of a well that she won't have to draw from, that, that's just always there, so she'll never be physically thirsty again. A change of that outside circumstance. Just as surely she's locked in on that, so surely has her life to this point been defined by her belief that this inner thirst that she has will be quenched if she can just change this other thing outside of her, this husband, if I can get the right one. Now, we've got to be really careful not to psychologize too much here. We honestly don't know anything about this woman and about what, ha- what led to her series of relationships. We don't know what happened to those other marriages, whether some of, them, some of these husbands maybe died, whether they fell apart because the husbands were abusive or were sexually unfaithful. Maybe she was difficult to live with. Maybe she expected too much. Maybe she was driven by a distant father to crave this male affirmation and attention and and never be satisfied with it. Who knows? What we do know is that she's tried to fill some sort of void through the security and affirmation of a husband and that it hasn't worked. See, what Jesus knows about her, what he knows about each of us, is that she needs a lot more than freedom from the regular trips to the well. She needs, she needs help off of the treadmill, the inner treadmill that she's been running on all of her life, tethered to for too long. Now that's the conversation. I, 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 we've got to take a step back here, though, before we drive it into ourselves. We need to take a step back and, know, and note something about the background for this conversation. Because Jesus is saying here, what he's identified, what we've tried to emphasize so far, 
is that this woman has a thirst that nothing has been able to quench. But, but really his point is, I can quench that thirst. I can give you living water. So what we need to know before we know whether Jesus has anything to offer us in this passage is what is he talking about when he speaks of living water? What is it, actually? We've talked about what it isn't, you know, and that the woman misunderstood it. But what is it? I think the first thing you've got to notice here on the background of what this living water actually is is that it's not anything outside of this woman. He says in verse 14, I will give, the the water I will give will become in him a spring of water. In him, a spring of water. He doesn't say that she won't be physically thirsty anymore. Doesn't offer her the well she's looking for. Not going to change that circumstance. He doesn't say that he can make her boyfriend a great guy. That this relationship will turn into an all-fulfilling marriage. Doesn't promise that. No, what he promises is to change her on the inside. To put something in her that will satisfy her forever. And the key background to this promise of something inside you that will satisfy you forever in a way that nothing else can, the key background to it is the language of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is drawing straight from a whole stock full of promises made by the prophets of the Old Testament for a day when Israel would no longer be so distracted by the things outside of them that they have nothing for God himself, but would actually know him, would have him inside of them, would have him to change them and transform them in what they know and what they love. And one of the most common images that's used for this promise that God would one day be in relationship with his people. One of the most common images used for that is the image of living water. This image would have been even more powerful there than, than it is here. You know, if, if anything, we, our problem here in Middle Tennessee has been too much water, right? We all remember the 2010 flood. Maybe even if you weren't living here, you probably heard about it. It was awful. In this culture, though, the place is dry. It's arid. In that place, water was life. The lack of it was death, and it was a real possibility. It was a perfect image for capturing what God wanted to do for his people. A perfect image of what his people were without him, dry, barren, lifeless, and a perfect image of what he would do in them when his, when his time came, so to speak, when the Savior, the Messiah, comes to his people. Let me, let me give you two examples from the prophets. One from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. Two of the biggest prophets, ones that most regularly use this living water imagery. You can turn there if you want, but I'm not going to be there long. I just want to read them to you, and you can go look at them, spend some time with them on your own if you want to. The one from Isaiah is chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Here's what the passage says. Looking ahead to when Israel will be restored and redeemed. This is God speaking to his people, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Think about our... our, our Samaritan woman here. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you keep looking for the perfect man? Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 is maybe even 
more to the point. This, is, this, to me, is the best background, the best, most insightful thing to notice about the Old Testament background that helps us understand what Jesus is doing here in this story. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what it says. My people, this is again God speaking, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You see the language? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've done two things. They've turned themselves away from me, the only one who can satisfy them, who can give them the life they were made to live. And instead of me, the second thing they've done is they've created other things that they look to for satisfaction. The problem is that not only are these things not, are these things not themselves water, they're not themselves something that can supply life, they can't even hold on to it. They're broken. So every time you fill into it, you spend your whole life pouring in, trying to stock up what will satisfy you, and there's a hole in the bottom, it just keeps draining out. It always leaves you lifeless. It drains you. It doesn't fill you up. My people have forsaken the fountain living, of living waters and they've traded them in for something that can't even hold water, much less supply it. Now think about this woman. can't imagine a better description of what she's facing. Her marriages have been broken cisterns. Her problem isn't that she has to keep drawing water from the well. It's that she has hewn out a vision of her life. Her own understanding of what it would be to be happy she has, she has hewn out a cistern for herself. And she's been pouring everything that she has into it. It hinges on these relationships. And it hasn't been able to hold her together. She's thirsty. And she will stay that way. As long as her water bottle can't hold water. She'll stay that way unless she comes to the source of living water. Unless Jesus gives her something that satisfies her from the inside out. And that is what Jesus came to offer. I wonder if you're resonating with this picture of this woman, with her condition, with what it is to be perpetually unsatisfied. If you haven't noticed that in your own experience yet, it could be that, probably is that you're just still too young. That, as as one author put it, your emptiness inside still feels like ambition or drive. And your anxiety still feels like hope. But there will come a time, if you don't feel dissatisfied now, there will come a time when you will. And even if you get what you're after, you'll realize it isn't what you thought it would be and that the target just keeps moving. See, friends, I think that unrest and disappointment are just basic features of what it is to be human. The Bible tells us to expect that. That the world we live in is not what it was meant to be. It's fallen. It's broken. And part of its brokenness in us is that we constantly look to things to satisfy us that just can't. And so our experience is always going to be a mixed one. Mixed with some real joy, but always temporary joy. Always incomplete. Think about it. It's true for everybody anywhere in the world. Here's a thought experiment for you. If you lived in Calcutta, in a slum, without running water or indoor plumbing, without knowledge of where your next meal was going to come from, wouldn't you imagine that if only you had a stable house, maybe a little space of your own, 
Didn't have to worry about where your water or your food was going to come from. Didn't have to worry if you could keep your kids alive. If you just had those basic needs covered, well, then anything else would be icing on the cake. You'd be good. Wouldn't that probably be how you would think if you lived in a slum in Calcutta? And a few of us have ever done without those things, right? But the reality is we aren't comparing our lives to folks who live in Calcutta. We're comparing our lives to folks who have just a little bit more than we do. And I think that holds true no matter where you are on the social ladder. There's always a little more you could have. There's always something about your life that could be easier. Now, now that is the, that's the diagnosis of where we are that I think this story presents to us. But we can't stop there. We've got to be really careful here. We've got to be really careful at this next step that we don't get the solution wrong. Because the story points us there too. And there's, there's, there's life and death that hang in the balance on the right solution, the right medicine for what it is that, that afflicts us. See, because our instinct, our instinct is probably to just sort of push ourselves mentally towards being more grateful for what we have, right? Let's try to compare ourselves to folks who live in Calcutta rather than folks who live in Belmede, and then we'll realize how much we have to be thankful for. And that's not a bad instinct, right? It, it, it is a good thing to realize that God has given you lots of wonderful gifts, to be thankful for what God has given you, to be more aware of what he's given you than what he hasn't given you yet. That's a good thing. But it's, it's very incomplete. For one thing, it doesn't do much for people who actually live in Calcutta, right? It's nice enough for you, but it doesn't do much for them. What if you were there? Would then there be nothing? We have nothing to offer? But it also doesn't do much to change us. It doesn't have any power in it. Calling ourselves to this sort of mindset change doesn't have a whole lot of power. In fact, what it can often do is just make us feel guilty. It'll make us just feel disappointed that we feel disappointed, which will make us feel disappointed that we feel so disappointed. And you can see how it, it just unravels. No, we need more than just a mindset shift. We need, we need a deeper solution. And that's exactly what Jesus offers us. See, Jesus came to connect us to God himself as a source of living water that's inside of us, that becomes more important to us than what's outside of us. Otherwise, Apart from this, apart from this sort of inner satisfaction in God and in our connection to him, apart from the relationship with him that Jesus came to make possible for us, apart from that, we're always going to love our vision of what's good for us. Our vision of the good life will always be more beloved to us, have a larger place in our heart than what God has actually given us. And our vision will always come up short. C.S. Lewis gives another image of this same general idea that, it's, that helps me a lot. In Mere Christianity, he describes humanity as a kind of car engine that's designed to run on one and only one sort of fuel. And that fuel is God himself, our connection to God. Now the problem is, one of the results of sin, where sin comes from, what gives it its power, is that we're constantly trying to fill our tank with other sorts of fuel. And it gets us a little ways, but eventually the engine starts smoking, it starts to sputter, and then it dies. And Lewis's point is that there is no other fuel. Or as he put it, that's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, in the way that we define, without bothering about religion. 
God, this is, this is the key, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it isn't there. There is no such thing. The engine runs on one fuel. There is one source that can quench your thirst. It is your connection to the God who made you for himself. And the only way to get it is through Jesus. Jesus came to offer you satisfaction. Now here's what I want to do to point ahead to next week. I'm not going to unpack this today. This is going to set us up for all of next week. The rest of the chapter, we haven't even gotten through half of it yet. The rest of the chapter, same story, same general context, same interaction with the woman. Shifts focus a little bit. Points to the last thing that this chapter wants to point us towards that, that Jesus came to offer. And that is a purpose for your life. Jesus came to clarify and to enable you to pursue the purpose for which you were made. You feel aimless ever? Ever ever concerned that maybe what it is you're giving your life to isn't good enough to make your life meaningful? This, This next section is for you. Where he goes next seems like another change of subject, but it isn't. The woman even seems to want to change the subject. He's identified her her pattern of one husband to the other to the other, and, he, and she says, well, uh, I see you're a prophet. Uh, so, what do you think about worship? You almost expect her to ask him whether, whether contemporary or traditional worship is better. You know, should we use an organ or an acoustic guitar? It's, it's kind of like that. It's a sort of uh, insider's debate between Samaritans and Jews about what the holiest place is and what it would look like to worship God in a way that pleases him and that will get him on your side and maybe get him to give you what you want. Uh, but Jesus won't go there. He's, he, he wants to change the game. It isn't about where you worship anymore. It isn't, about, it isn't about things that are outside of you. It's about spirit and truth. It's about a life of worship that testifies to the worthiness of God because it's satisfied in Him and in what He gives. The purpose of your life is to worship God by your satisfaction in Him and to gain for Him new worshipers. To model for others and call others to the satisfaction that only only God can provide to you in Himself. There's your teaser for next week. We're going to unpack it together then. For now, we pray.